Well, hello, church, and if you would open to Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8. We're going to start reading in verse 6. We'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed them no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each his neighbor or each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will have, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And spring. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, we thank You that that old covenant has now vanished away. 70 AD, the fall of Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. No sacrifices could be made. It was done. And we thank You that You did not leave us without a covenant, but You made a new covenant in Your Son, in His one single sacrifice for sin. You've perfected for all time those who would draw near by faith. We pray You'd solidify these truths into us so much so that we would apply them to how we deal with our children. And so, Father, we ask for Your Spirit's help to understand Your Word, to rightly divide Your Word, and to then go and live according to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start today a series, about a year-long series, uh, all of it won't be sermons, um, some, some sermons, some additional teaching videos, uh, some books we're going to read, and then some parenting practicums, and we'll talk more uh, another time about what those are. Um, but we want to start this uh, series on parenting uh, because we believe, as the Scripture says, children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord. And we want to be faithful to raise them as God has called us to, and as you all know, on any given uh, Sunday, we have well over 100 children uh, in this building. And, um, and so in seeking to be faithful and unified regarding how we're trying to raise them in the ways of the Lord, we thought let's take a year and let's start by seeing some questions that many of you had. So we, we posted an anonymous questionnaire and tried to fill out uh, some of the questions that many of you have regarding parenting. And many of the questions that we received came back to salvation. How do I know if my child is saved? And then probably second to that was regarding baptism. When do we baptize our kids? How do we talk to our children about baptism? And, you know, it's for, for those of us who, who have had children and standing in the, um, the hospital room and you're, you're holding that little precious fragile, tiny child, you not only feel this overwhelming sense of, I have to care for this child's body, it's dependent on me, but you also feel, so is their soul. 
their eternal soul is uh, mine to care for. And we all deeply love our children. Um, We would give our lives, we would give our own salvation that our children would know the Lord. Uh, We're not a church that just wants our kids to get good education, go to a good college, make a lot of money, be happy. We want our children to prosper in the Lord and to worship Christ eternally. And, and so the, the worst thing I could do pastorally is get up here and just give cliche little answers uh, regarding these things that matter so much to us. Um, and I know there's quite, I, I think a lot of the questions come back to many times in Baptist circles, certain things are assumed rather than taught. There's just assumptions regarding baptism in children and, and there's little teaching related to the topic. Um, many are not taught about uh, the early 17th century Baptists, particular Baptists, the er- pre-Reformation Waldensians. Many are not taught about the early church and the different baptismal practices. And, and none, many don't go in and do a deep dive study of baptism, especially as it relates to kids. And so... Um, you know, I grew up hearing things like, in that good old southern country accent, uh, you know, if baptism was good enough for John, uh, being a Baptist was good enough for John, it's good enough for me, you know, and, um, and, and then everybody's like, you know, doesn't know much church history, hadn't really studied the issue, didn't know counter arguments, and so everybody's like, yeah, why would you baptize an infant? And it was kind of laughed off, and everybody who didn't uh, who, who would baptize an infant is kind of seen as crazy. And uh, what I don't want to do is straw man other views of baptism, even though people do that to us as Baptists, okay? Just so we know, we are the ones that everybody straw mans our arguments for baptism. Uh, I don't want to do that to others. Um, I, I want to recognize the immense amount of unity we have with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Um, you know, every time I go to Brazil, I preach at a, a Presbyterian church, a good, faithful brothers and sisters there, uh, pastors, uh, many pastor friends that are Presbyterian. Many of us educate our kids that are in schools with Presbyterian brothers and sisters because we're united on so many issues. Um, I, my library, probably like many of yours, many of my books, R.C. Sproul, uh, Matthew Henry, right, John Calvin, all these Presbyterians, and and we we rejoice in, in so many similarities. I've been to Baptist seminaries and Presbyterian seminaries. Um, there's just all this unity, but when it comes to our children, we disagree. We disagree. Um, Many of you know the reformers like Luther and Calvin uh, would have kicked John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, out of the city. They would not have had close, fun fellowship together. Uh, Many of you know Zwingling and Knox would have not had nice words for Charles Spurgeon. Or A.W. Pink, or John Piper, or Paul Washer, Bodie Bauckham, or Steve Lawson, or all these men. They would not have been unified. Although they're all reformed, they're all five-point affirmers, love the doctrines of grace, unity on so many issues related to the Gospel. But when it comes to their children, sharply divided. Sharply divided. And what that leads many people to do then is to say, well, man, these are godly men. These are smart men. And they can't figure it out. It must not be that important. And and here's what we can't say, guys. If we can say anything about this, what we can't say, and none of these men would say, is that these things aren't important. They are massive. We're talking about our children. We're talking about our children's souls. We're talking about... Something that I, I'm, I'm not going to be neutral about. I'm not riding the fence on this. We're a Baptist church. Um, we've got convictions. And, but I want to, I want to pastorally be a, a, a faithful shepherd to rightly divide the word and not avoid questions that many of you have, but hit these head on and try to speak 
uh, to them. So we have this series, Baptist Covenantalism and Our Children. Um, we'll spend three weeks on this, Lord willing, that's the plan. Uh, this week, I want to give kind of an intro, some background history to this whole uh, debate, and then look at covenant theology, ask what is that, and then ask what is new covenant theology that's this week. Next week, I want to look at baptism, which is the sign of the new covenant, and ask, who gets the sign? Do infants get the sign? Or do those who've believed the gospel get the sign? Who gets the sign of baptism? That's next week. And then uh, the third week, I want to look at a few New Testament passages that I think clearly show that Christian children, uh, or that children born to Christian parents aren't like the kids in the world. There's something different about them. The Scripture says that. But in what sense are they different? And what sense are they not like the kids in the world? And, and we're going to study that the third week. And so there's two ways we could go about this series. Um, it seems to me. One, I could just kind of tip the scales from the, from the uh, onset and give all the passages that Baptists love to talk about when we talk about these things. We could talk about the etymology of the word baptism, how it means to submerge, and, and we could talk about uh, the Ethiopian eunuch and how when they went to get baptized, they went down into the water. Uh, we could talk about Jesus' baptism. He came up out of the water. Um, and, and, the, and the symbolism of being buried with Christ and raised to newness of life. And, and um, we could end the discussion, I think, with John the Baptist, who when the Pharisees came to get baptized by him, what did he say? Bear fruit, keeping with repentance. Then I'll baptize you. So he's looking for some fruits and evidences of repentance and faith before he was willing to baptize. And I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for us as Baptists to focus on and things to, that are oftentimes conveniently ignored. Um, and so what I want to do is look at those things that are conveniently ignored in many discussions. I want to look at the passages that are used against Baptists by those who aren't Baptists to say you're wrong. And you should baptize your infants. I want our whole study to revolve around those passages. Um, that sounds way more fun, right? That's, that's a, a lot better time. It, it's kind of funny because my original plan wasn't to do a three-week series on this. It was to do a 10-minute video. <laughs> um, and then I thought, yes, this is not fair. Like, it's not fair to the history of this argument. It's not fair to you because you care about the Scriptures more than that. You care about your kids more than that. And I just think, I'm not like that. I don't want a 10-minute video on something this important. You know, we're the type of people that if our, we go to the doctor and the doctor, you know, with our child, and the doctor says, your child has this issue and it's going to be with them the rest of their life. And then they give you a five-minute overview about that, and then you leave. What are you doing when you get home? You're researching that. You're not, you're not satisfied with a five-minute answer to something that's going to affect your child the rest of their life. How much more things related to our child's eternal soul should we be diligent to study? And, and, and guys, we, we know in the last two years, three years or so with all the COVID stuff, there are parents who have become self-taught medical experts related to viruses. And then with their kids in schooling on CRT and cultural gender and sexuality issues, how many hundreds of hours have been put into studying out so many things by parents because it relates to our kids? Can we not give time to this? I think we all want to and see the need to do that. And, and so every Christian parent, those of you who aren't a Christian parent yet, but will be, might be, if God wills, hear me out. Hear me out on this. Because I think there's two ditches we could fall into. And I, I personally want to try to guard us from. One ditch is where many Baptists go. This is why there's this is why a lot of confusion is going on, is because in 
modern Baptist circles, easy believism, and I talk about this all the time, parents just want to quickly assure themselves, my kid's saved because they came and walked the aisle. They raised the hand. They prayed the prayer. They're in. <sighs> right? And we can't do that. Because that's not a biblical assurance, just raising a hand or repeating certain words. We shouldn't assure ourselves like that. That's a ditch we don't want to fall into. But then there's another ditch. Many uh, reacting, I believe, to that swing the whole other direction into a, a type of pedo-baptism without thinking through these things thoroughly and rejecting rightly many of the modern Baptist easy believism abuses also with that throw out the baby with the bathwater and throw out a type of historical Baptist covenantalism that they haven't even heard about yet. They haven't even studied yet. And, and so, I want to lay out four, I think we have a slide for this, uh, four historical views. Yep. You're going to land in one of these. You can try to say, I'm in maybe two of those. You can try to do that, I guess. But you're going to probably land in one of these four. These are kind of the four historic views on children and, and baptism. Uh, the first is called baptismal regeneration. That all children are born into sin, and so how do you rid them of that sin? You baptize them as an infant in the name of the Trinity. Uh, if, if you're a believing parent, that is. Um, you would baptize them in the name of the Trinity. They would receive a saving grace at baptism. So Catholics teach this. Uh, Lutherans in a different form teach this. And I will throw out, uh, there are some Presbyterians who teach this, although they wouldn't want the label. CREC does teach this, even though they don't want the label, because they objectify the covenant, uh, call their children Christians after they've been infant baptized, put them in the new covenant through baptism, call them Christians, allow them to come to the table. You can't rid yourself of the label when you make your child a Christian through baptism like that. But uh, there's a lot of nuance to that, and I know they don't want that label. But baptismal regeneration um, is that if you have a believing parent who baptizes you, you're saved. And historically, that's the dominant belief, believe it or not. Um, until the Reformation, where the second view was began to be articulated, which is covenantalism or covenant theology. John Calvin uh, was the most influential in this and those Westminster divines who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith. So you've got people like R.C. Sproul, Joel Beakey, John Calvin, many of the Reformers and Puritans who would have affirmed a covenantalism where, where you baptize your infant, but it doesn't save them. It just prom it's a promise that one day they will be saved, but it isn't saving them. Alright, so there's the distinction between the first and the second. You baptize the infant, but the infant and the infant's in the covenant, but they're not really in the covenant until they believe the gospel, and then they're in the covenant fully. So it's kind of confusing for those of us who are Baptists to be in the covenant, but not really in the covenant. I think Calvin uh, articulated this because of a sacerdotalism, which is a church-state relationship that was happening in England, and he wanted to give some biblical backing as he still tried to reject uh, Catholicism. And their view of this, he wanted to kind of give a consistent biblical perspective. Um, at that same time, in the 16th century, the second-generation reformers, you have these uh, what are particular Baptist reformers, and they're reading Calvin on covenantalism, and they're going, we agree with a lot of that, but not the part about baptizing your infants. That doesn't seem to be in the Bible. And so this is the Baptist covenantal view, this third view. Um, many times it's called 1689 federalism, just means covenant. Um, it, it, it's what our elder statement of faith, the 1689 London Baptist uh, teaches. Uh, many people that you'd recognize, William Carey and John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and A.W. Pink and modern preachers like Paul Washer, Vody Bauckham, James White, countless others, they would affirm this view I'm going to teach. Um, it's a particular Baptist view going back to the 17th century. Um, it's not Anabaptists because they're the last group. 
Anabaptists uh, heard all these different covenantal views and they rejected all of it and they basically pushed back against all this and they said, no, children are born into sin, therefore they're like everybody else. It doesn't matter if they have Christian parents or not. And so I don't have a nice title for this, but Christians uh, with pagan children is what I'm calling it. I know that just sounds really terrible. Um, if you've got a better term for it, let me know. I, um, but the, the third week, I want to I wanna argue against that and show some problems with that. Now, I know I'm giving a lot of church history here. Uh, we're going to get into the Scriptures. But I, I bring up church history because I, I think it's important to remember many Baptists are really arrogant about this issue. And Presbyterians, and Lutherans, and Catholics. I mean... <laughs> A lot of people are arrogant about their views on baptism, I think, because many times we don't know the history. That this thing's been debated for 2,000 years. People are ready to kill each other over this issue. I mean, it's crazy the amount of hostility around the issue of baptism in the church. And then, we've just got the right answer. Everybody else is, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about. That's just arrogant. Now, you may have the right answer, and everybody may be wrong, but it's to have that posture isn't wise um, when we remember that we can go back to the earliest Christians and find evidence of submerging only believers and sprinkling infants. The earliest church documents, we're finding evidence. Even in the earliest uh, church documents, we can find credo and pedo-baptism. It's a mixed bag historically. And there's been no one way this has always been viewed. So, you, so we can't ignore history. We don't want to over-glorify history. What we want to do is be faithful reformers, which means we test every historic tradition to Scripture. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformata, the church reformed and always reforming, means we take a tradition like baptism and we scrutinize it according to Scripture. That's our tradition. Bereans. If you don't like the word reformers, just call it Bereans. Alright? We test everything to Scripture. And, and so that's what we want to do. Um, Baptist covenantalism, before we can get to the Baptist part next week, um, because again, baptism is a sign of the covenant, we need to start with covenant. So here's the first question. I've got two questions. The first is this, what is covenant theology? Because our church does uh, affirm covenant theology and teach covenant theology minus the baptism of infants part. So what, what is covenant theology? Because covenant matters. Covenant is the only way God is related to His people in the Old and New Testament. We do know that. Um, so parents... Uh, our kids can't be in relationship with God unless they're in a covenant relationship with God. We realize that? It's very popular in our day for parents to say, I just want my children to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I say, Amen. As long as that's a, a personal covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. Which many people just kind of mean something more sentimental and man-centered. But biblically, you only have a relationship with God via covenant. It's the only way God has ever related to people is through covenant. And so Mark Jones said, the Christian religion must be understood covenantally for that is how God has chosen to relate to man. So covenant is how sinful people are reconciled to this holy God. It is through covenant. That's, that's the only way we can approach God. So the first covenant, as we know, uh, God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's called the covenant of works. They broke this covenant very quickly. And God, on His part, was very gracious to begin to give promises. The first in the garden He gave was that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, or the offspring of the woman would crush the offspring of the, servant, uh, of the serpent. And then that promise, we hear it in Genesis 15, given to Abraham, when God says to Abraham, through your 
offspring, the nations will be blessed. That salvific offspring, that Christ. Now, why do I say that offspring is Christ? Because Paul says that in Galatians 3.16. He says, promises were made with Abraham and his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, plural, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is the Christ. So the promise isn't given to Abraham, isn't to Israel. It's a promise about Christ who would come in the line of Israel, but it was a promise about Christ. And so Old Testament saints were saved believing in a promise about a coming Messiah. That's how they were saved. They weren't saved by Old Testament covenants. They were saved under Old Testament covenants. So over and over again, Paul's arguing this in Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, that the children of Abraham are only those in union with Christ by faith. Here's where he says it in Galatians 3.8. The Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. Abraham had the Gospel preached to him in the Old Testament. And then he was justified and saved by faith in that gospel? Yes, Paul would say. That's exactly what I just said. That's how Abraham was saved. I mean, how do we think Enosh and Enoch in Genesis 4 and 5 were saved? It says they walked with God. You say, well, it's it's the law. They were obeying the law. The law wasn't given. How were they saved? Faith. What about Noah? How, 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 Noah will be in heaven with us. How was he saved? Faith. Job, who I think lived before Abraham and Noah, in Job 19, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. Job had faith in a coming Messianic ruler who would stand on the earth. You think he wasn't saved by that faith? He was saved by that faith. That's why these Old Testament saints will be in heaven with us. It's because they were looking forward to Christ by faith. We look back to Christ by faith. We're only saved by faith in Christ. This seems to be Paul's argument. Now, here's the question I want to raise. What about all the Israelites who received the promises, who received the covenant, that is the the, uh, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, and then they weren't saved. They weren't God-fearing people. For example, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For the drink from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, not a few bad apples, most of Israel, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Or John 1.11, that says Jesus came to His own people, that is the Jews, and they did not receive Him. Or, Jesus, right after that, is talking to Nicodemus. Who's Nicodemus? He's a Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, got the sign of the covenant, and he says, you can't get in like that, Nicodemus. You've got to be, what? Born again. It's not through the sign of the covenant that you're getting in. And then Jesus, even more clearly in John 8, talking to the Jewish Pharisees who were calling themselves children of Abraham. And what did Jesus say to him? And they were calling themselves children of Abraham because of why? Because they had the sign of circumcision. And he goes, you're children of the devil. Those who have the faith of Abraham are sons of God. Romans 9, I think this is maybe most clear. Verse 3, he said, Paul says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
for they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, that Abrahamic promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here it is. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And, it, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, that's the child of promise, shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, the children with the sign of circumcision, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. We'll come back to that word promise next week. Question, why is salvation not for infants saved because their parents gave them the sign of the covenant? Why are even those who had the sign of the covenant, circumcision as infants, not saved? And then, we don't have to guess, Paul tells us right after that, verse 15, he says, because God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then he says right after that in verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And so God promises to Israel whose kids had the covenant sign, only a remnant of those with the sign will be saved. Showing salvation isn't according to who gets the sign of the covenant, but salvation is according to the electing mercy of God. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Both Jews... We'll say more about election and children next week. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He's talking about the physical covenant sign of circumcision not being enough to save you. He says, here's what you need. Circumcision of the heart. And you think, well, that's just, maybe he just means, Paul picks that up in Romans 2. 28, and says a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh, but a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. And guys, we, we've, we've got to get, this is how we have to read our Bibles. All right? Jesus taught us how to read the Bible. You go, Damn, this is a big book, so there's a lot of stuff in here. Well, Jesus helps us. He tells us how to read it. He says, all the law and the prophets is about me. John chapter 5. Moses wrote about me. All of these covenants, all of these promises, all of these things, they're ultimately about me. Salvation is only in me. So he taught us we can understand the old covenant and its promises. How? Through the New Testament authors. That's our, what we would call a hermeneutic, uh, a, a principle of Bible interpretation. How do we understand the Scriptures? We let the New Testament interpret the Old. That's how Jesus taught us to read it. That's how Paul and the other apostles taught us to read it. We do this, right? This is how we know about the Trinity. Do we build our doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament? No. We can read the New Testament and read back and see elements of it, but we... We understand the Trinity. We understand the divinity of Christ. We understand the resurrection from the New Testament. And then we read back. We do this on every other major doctrine, but with baptism. With baptism, otherwise faithful brothers read it the other way. They don't read the New Testament back into the Old Testament. They read the Old Testament into the New Testament. Therefore, they baptize their infants. That's the difference. I'm telling you, right, I'm going to bring this up again next week in case you missed that, but that is why we differ at the end of the day. 
We have a different hermeneutic. We have the same hermeneutic on every other issue, but on baptism, the hermeneutic switches and the old covenant patterns of the the child as an infant gets the sign. That pattern gets brought into the New Testament and we don't allow the New Testament authors to tell us how we deal with the new covenant. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use the hermeneutic to go to the New Testament and let it help us understand uh, the old. And so let's end uh, with this question. What is the new covenant? What is the new covenant? Again, that's the issue. I mean, if you want to know, man, should I baptize my baby or not? I mean, study the new covenant. That will seal the deal for you, I believe. This is central. Hebrews 8, verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on Better promises. That's not insignificant. The new covenant has better promises than the old. If the first covenant had been faultless, there, wouldn't have, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So whatever the new covenant is, it's better. It's new. Sounds shocking, I know. New covenant's new. It's not just renewed. It's not just slightly better. It's not like my iPhone 13 that's slightly better than an iPhone 12 little upgrade. It's way better. It's far superior. It's built on much better promises. It, what, look, what we have to understand is the Old Covenant was built and designed to be temporary. That's how it was built. It wasn't, in, it wasn't built to last forever. It was built to be temporary. So think about the, the priests who are making daily sacrifices. They're holding animals covered in blood, hundreds of them, and and they're looking at this thing going, it's a beast. I'm a man. How how does the beast get rid of my sin? Doesn't that maybe make them think, maybe a better sacrifice is coming. Maybe there's something better than just killing an animal for a man's sin. And we know from Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The old covenant was built to need a new one. It's like how they build appliances in our day. They built them to break, right? That's how they build them. They build them so you go, this thing is not supposed to last more than 15 years. That's by design so that I have to buy a new one. You know, it's a really brilliant way to make money from the uh, manufacturers. That's how the old covenant is. It was built to break. It was built to not be good enough and us have to need a better covenant. So, the author of Hebrews quotes this new covenant. Jeremiah 31, let's read it. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant, the old one, that I made with their Uh, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not each each one his neighbor... uh, and, his, and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all, all, all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then the author says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I think Hebrews was written in 50, 60 A.D. time frame. And by 70 A.D., the fall of Jerusalem, the temple was done, the old covenant's fully done. He's prophesying just a few years ahead and the old covenant comes down fully. All we have is the new covenant. Praise the Lord. There's no even option. You can't even go back. I think that's what the book of Hebrews is basically saying. You've got all these converts from Judaism who are getting saved, becoming Christians. And the author and and their family and their friends are probably saying, come back. 
you're in a cult. I know Jesus was a good guy, probably a great prophet, but this is a cult. Like, come back, come back. And the author of Hebrews is saying, there's nothing to go back to. It's done. We've got a once and for all sacrifice. It's Christ. There's nothing to go back to. There's a better promises in this new covenant. So, here's four quickly, four promises of the new covenant. Number one, a promise of empowerment. It says the old covenant, uh, or, or I believe the old covenant gave no power. I mean, if you read the old covenant, it doesn't seem people are empowered to obey, as in everyone in the covenant. But in the new covenant, it says he will write his law on their hearts. The old covenant had the power to condemn you. It had the power to say, obey or die. It didn't have the power. It couldn't give you the power to obey it. But the new covenant says, I will, I will make a covenant with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. That's a, a, a promise that you will obey. A promise you will be holy. A promise you will put your sin to death. But the Old Covenant is just giving you a list of rules. A book. But without the Spirit, at least for everyone in the Old Covenant. That's why um, I was reading uh, the other day with, with the kids, with my kids, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, which talks about the difference between the Old and New Covenant. And this is how Paul says it. The letter kills... But the Spirit gives life. And so I said to my kids, the Bible kills, but the Bible plus the Spirit gives life. This book alone does not save anyone. It's the book plus the Spirit. Giving them life. Writing it on their heart. Empowering them. Changing them supernaturally to obey. That's why I was listening to a, a parenting uh, teaching the other day on discipline. It was great, great teaching and in, in, in many things that were said. Um, but then this, this person who was speaking got to the end and said, so if you're just faithful to model for your children the Christian life, if you're diligent to discipline, if you show some grace, you know, your kids are going to grow up and bear the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm like, I said out loud, uh, if they have the Spirit. I mean, that's important. It's not just teach them all the right stuff. They need the Spirit of God in them. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. So the new covenant is a promise of empowerment. Number two, the new covenant is a promise where everyone is regenerate. Verse 11. You shall not each teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord. Personally. Not just about the Lord. They know the Lord. They walk with the Lord. They pray to the Lord. They want to obey the Lord. Everyone in the new covenant knows the Lord because the law is written on their heart. The Spirit of God is in them. Everyone is regenerate. In the old covenant, some were regenerate, but not all. Look what Jesus said in John 7.37. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, now this was said about the Spirit that those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in the Old Covenant, uh, the Spirit did enter into people. People were alive by the Spirit, but not all of them. In the New Covenant, all those who are Christ's have the Spirit. They're all born again. They're all walking with the Lord. They shall all know Me. All those in the New Covenant are justified by faith, born again, adopted into God's family. Therefore, they're sanctified and persevered. One day will be resurrected and glorified. All of them. It's a way better covenant. Ezekiel 36.26 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will, I will, uh, I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey all of My rules. Then you will live in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be My people and I will be your God and I will save you from all your uncleanness. That's everyone in the New Covenant that's a promise for. 
Which leads to the third point. In the New Covenant, there's a promise that none will fall away. And I think the book of Hebrews, I wish I had more time, teaches this so clearly. That those who do fall away, you say, well, there's a guy, he was worshiping in church with us. He was a member and then he fell away and now he, he no longer walks with the Lord. Well, if, if he fell away and he's never coming back, that's called an apostate. And we put him in the category of Judas, who was never a believer, never in the new covenant, never had the spirit, but he looked like he did on the outside, but he was never in. But then there's others. They fall into sin. They look like they're falling away, but they are in the new covenant and they do have the spirit. And so what does the father do? He disciplines them and he brings them back. And Hebrews says, I think clearly, all those in the new covenant will persevere to the end. And lastly, in the new covenant, all members are promised full and final forgiveness by the blood of Christ. Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more, which Jesus said at the Lord's Supper. This is the what? New covenant in my blood. So, um, if we have a four-year-old in this church, or a 14-year-old, and they go, I need the blood of Jesus to forgive me of my sin. And they're serious about that, and we believe them, we're baptizing them. I don't see anything in Scripture that says there's an age limit as to who the Spirit can make alive and who we can as a church receive as this person entered the new covenant by faith. Let's baptize them. I think that we must baptize those who have put their faith in Christ. Now let me close uh, with a question. Try to bring this all to something simple. How are our children saved? This is going to be shocking. You ready? The same way you were saved. Nobody's ever or will ever be saved but by faith in Christ. Nobody will ever be saved but by the new birth. That's how you're in. And when you're in, you're in. And that's why I'm concerned that there are some teaching in our day. You can be in the new covenant and not endure to the end and not have your sins forgiven and one day receive the judgment of God in hell. There are reformed preachers saying that because of their view, erroneous, I believe, of the new covenant. We need to know what we believe about the new covenant. And, and my answer to that would be, what type of new... This isn't new. You still believe in the Old Covenant. You're just calling it the New Covenant. That's how the Old Covenant worked. In, in the New Covenant, all are empowered. The law is on their heart. He causes them to obey. All are regenerate and know the Lord. He seals them with the Spirit for the day of redemption. He glorifies them. He, he, he disciplines those He loves if they stray. In the New Covenant, all the blood-bought saints make it to glory because the Scripture says He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to Him by faith. How could you be in the covenant and not make it to the end? And the blood of Christ not cleanse you of your sins and you go all the way to the end. But some are teaching that. And it concerns me greatly. It's assuming the Gospel. That's why it concerns me. When you put the sign of the covenant on an infant... And that sign of the covenant of baptism means you're in. You're forgiven. You're a brother or sister in Christ. You're going to endure to the end. You put it on them at birth. How can that not be confusing? How can that not confuse the Gospel? I think we're comforting them with the Gospel before they've shown evidence of faith in the Gospel. And to be fair, I am equally concerned with Baptists who so easily comfort their kids because they repeated some words. 
Kids can repeat words. It's very easy to get your kids to repeat words. Don't comfort them because of words. But if you've given your infant child the sign of the covenant, what urgency is there for that child to cling to Christ as their only hope if they're already in? How can we not be concerned with language like grab them by their baptism? When the baptism being referred to is a baptism their parents gave them that didn't, uh, wasn't given to them because of faith that they had, but faith that their parents had. How is that not assuming the gospel? How, isn't Christ the only hope for Jew, Gentile, children born to Christian parents or not? A lot more could be said. Um, all concerns aside, I think what everybody's in agreement on and what I think is clear is that our commitment to Christ's new covenant work is directly connected to the signs He's given. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so that's why this matters. That's why there's so much debate. The evidence of that internal work of Christ in us and His Spirit in us is connected to baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Bible does that. Jesus does that. And so it matters. And baptism matters because we're shown we have been buried with Christ, raised to new life, and coming to the table matters because this is how we continually identify, proclaim, show our dependence on Christ and Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we ask You uh, for that Spirit that we just have spoken about to be our teacher. Lord, I put these things before us as well as I know how to, but Lord, we need You, who are the teacher, to give us discernment, to help us weigh out all the Scriptures. I've only given some. And so, Lord, we, we ask for You to guide us, give us discernment, avoid, help us avoid confusion on areas. Lord, we want to exalt Your Son and we want Your Son to be exalted in our children's lives. And so, we ask You for these things, Lord. And we pray as we go to the table that, Lord, You would deepen our confidence in that once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Or His blood cleansed us from all sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.